Years ago, Kathy and I uh, traveled with another couple to a park here in Texas, State Park, and it was near their hometown. In fact, they, of course, they grew up there and they grew up going to the park all the time as kids. And um, after we arrived, they pointed to an old store and said that uh, the ice cream at this store is really good. And so we bought some. And uh, they, you know, they were lapping it up and loving it. And after a couple of uh, bites of ice cream, Kathy and I kind of looked at each other like, this is gross. The ice cream was tasted like chemicals. And then it sort of hit me. The reason that this other couple liked the ice cream had nothing to do with the ice cream. It had everything to do with the fact that their childhood memory of getting that ice cream at that store was a great memory. Their memories flavored the ice cream. They flavored the facts. But those of us who who tasted the ice cream without that, uh, without the nostalgia, as it were, could taste it for what it was, and it was gross, and it tasted like chemicals. But I've thought about that through the years, as, um, as time has gone on, how we can glorify nostalgia. It can blind us to the truth. And I thought of uh, a few examples. Uh, for example, we might say, um, you know, our school or our university or our, our college uh, offers the finest education in, the fee- in my field in the country. Or, for example, uh, the best way to relax is to watch a movie. Or another might be uh, uh, big cities are better for relationships than small towns. Uh, Here's another. This is going to hit close to home. True worship requires an organ, choir robes, hymns, and we could go ahead and throw in a King James Bible. (laughs) I mean, it was good enough for the Apostle Paul, right? It's good enough for us. Another one is um, the only type of preaching that is acceptable is expository preaching, which is sort of interesting because uh, the only sermons Jesus ever taught were topical. But see, all of these all of these preferences are largely influenced by our memories and the nostalgia that we have of uh, of the way it used to be, and therefore the way it ought to be. And we can glorify our memories. We think something is best because it's our experience. You know, whenever you travel to another country and you hear somebody else speaking another language, you think, you know, why don't they just speak English? It makes so much more sense than to mess with that foreign language. You know, we really think that way. And uh, uh, I know sometimes when I was learning uh, Greek and Hebrew, I think, you know, why don't we just do English here? It'd be so much easier. Uh, of course, you can see the, the ludicrous thinking there, but that's how we think in our personal experiences, and our personal experiences can blind us to the truth. No matter how hard we try to remember something objectively, we really only recall through the filter of our memories and through the filter of our emotions associated with those memories. Trusting our perspective alone is sort of like taking a verse out of context. You're going to end up eating ice cream that tastes like chemicals if you don't have the, the input 
or the perspective of other people, especially the perspective of God. Let's look together at the book of Psalms. Kind of a one-off message here today, just a lesson from the book of Psalms. And the very first chapter, very familiar, Psalm 1, uh, probably almost as familiar to you as the closing lines of Robert Frost's poem. And I don't know that we know any other poems by Robert Frost except that one that ends with, I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. I've read some different uh, interpretations of that poem most of the time. We interpret that poem as uh, sort of glorifying individualism. You know, I'm going to take the way that nobody else takes, and that's going to make my life better than everybody else's. Typically, that's how we take that poem. In fact, that's probably what you think the poem means. But I've, I've read another uh, interpretation of it, and it's pretty significant as far as its uh, observations that that's not what Frost meant by that. Uh, it's it's a nice application for us, and it makes great posters. But um, it seems that Frost's idea was basically more that uh, whatever whatever road you take, uh, you're going to get the results of that road. It was sort of like that. It, it's sort of like what the what Solomon wrote in the book of Ecclesiastes when he says, uh, you know, whether a tree falls to the south or the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. <laughs> That's in Ecclesiastes eleven three. I like that. It's just sort of like, you know, where the tree falls, that's where, that's where it lays. And uh, we think, well, how do I apply that to my life? And we apply that to our life by saying, the decision you make, north or south, whichever direction you decide that you're going to go, that's where you are. Psalm 1 is giving us a very practical application of that truth, that there are two roads diverged in the wood, as it were. One is well-worn, it is common, it's cozy, it's the way that the world goes. In fact, even if we just leave the world out of it and just say, you know, let's just talk about Christians, we could say there's a couple of different roads in the wood as well. And uh, one is, is easy, easier, and another, honestly, requires a machete and a chainsaw to make your way through it. But it promises a blessing in the end that, uh, that makes far more difference. It, again, Frost's poem talks about in the future, in, in years ahead, I will look back and say, this road has made all the difference because it's the road I chose. Well, it's not so, uh, you know, A or B. It's not so equal level in this psalm. It's... Uh, the Lord definitely says, this is the road that you want to take. And he does that by showing you not the first steps of the road, but the end of those roads, the end of those paths. So a very familiar psalm, and it's always a challenge, isn't it, when we come to a place that's familiar, to look at it uh, with fresh eyes. So give yourself the discipline of really paying attention to the text and uh, to the degree that what I say reflects the text, pay attention to me as well. And let's look at uh, the first verse here and just take this bit by bit. 
Verse 1 says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. We're introduced to a person, not just a man, but a person, who is blessed by God, we're told. How blessed? Blessed by God because of decisions that this person has made. And the first decision we see very clearly is that he refuses to listen to the world's counsel, the counsel of the wicked, when it comes to making decisions. When they give him advice, he doesn't take that advice. In fact, when they invite him to participate in something, he doesn't go there. He doesn't, and notice the verbs here. It says he does not walk, he does not stand, he does not sit. Just think of the movement there. Walking is moving, standing is still vertical, but you're still, and sitting, I mean, now you're all the way down committed. There's a progression there of uh, from movement to settling. And we're told that this person never even begins that progression. He doesn't, he doesn't walk in the council, he doesn't stand in the path, and he doesn't sit in the seat. There is no part of his life that listens to the counsel of the world. The blessed man is blessed because he refuses to believe, to behave, or to belong to anything in the world. But the choice comes as a result, really, of another choice, which verse 2 tells us about. In contrast to the counsel of the world, here's why he makes those good decisions. Verse 2, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. I love the emphasis that we've had, whether it's uh, Emmanuel's devotions or whether it's the Gideon's uh, emphasis on on the Word or it's Larry Moyer's emphasis on uh, making sure that you have time in the Word Uh, Psalm 1 is doing the exact same thing, and it is something that we need to hear on a regular basis. There's probably not any of us, in fact, I'm confident there's not any who are on our Zoom class today that wouldn't say, you know what, the Bible needs to be a priority in my life. Uh, And not just the Bible, but delighting in the law of the Lord. And that in that delight, notice it says that there is meditation day and night. To meditate is not the New Agey, you know, Eastern mysticism idea of emptying your mind. It's not emptying your mind, because once you do, like Jesus said, you know, once a demon leaves, you're going to have five more that are worse to enter in. You don't want to empty the mind. You want to fill the mind and then mull over. It's sort of like a cow chewing the cud. That's kind of a gross analogy, but it's a great one. You know, they take it in, they, they digest it, they swallow it, and then a little bit later, you know, they'll bring it back up again and chew on it a little more. That's what it is with the Word of God. There is this meditation day and night. It's, it's a, constant, uh, a constant meditation on the truth. And I think we often define uh, the quality of our lives, or the quality of our spiritual lives, by the quality of our emotional lives. Boy, I hope you hear this, because we, we, and I mean me as well, often do this. If we feel good about ourselves, then we tend to see ourselves as spiritual. 
Uh, if we feel bad about ourselves, we tend to see ourselves as unspiritual. We tend to gauge the quality of our spiritual life by the quality of our emotional life. And it's not necessarily that way. Emotions are a great gift from God. They're a wonderful gift from God. But they are not the barometer of our guide, of our guiding decisions. They're not the barometer of our spirituality. They're not the barometer of our faith. We can feel one thing, but we can believe something totally different. And of course, the problem also is that our actions typically follow our feelings. This is why marketing, when marketers market, they market to your feelings because they know that if they can get your feelings aroused, if they can evoke empathy, then they'll get a donation. If they can uh, evoke anger, then they will get an action. It's typically our emotions that cause our decisions. And uh, I love uh, I love Dr. Toussaint's words. I remember his uh, wise statement that he said, "If you're not sure that if you're in fellowship with God or not, because emotions may tell you you're not, you need to assume that you are in fellowship with God, unless you know of a very specific reason, not that you aren't. And if you're not, well, then pull out First John one nine, confess it, and then know based on the truth of God's word, not based on your feelings." that you are back in fellowship with God. We've got to filter those things through truth and not filter truth through our emotions. I don't know who said it, but I love the phrase, don't believe everything you think. Talk about a bumper sticker. That ought to be a a bumper sticker. That could almost be a proverb because it's so true. Don't believe everything you think. Filter your thoughts through Scripture. Don't filter the Scripture through your thoughts. So, meditation on the Word of God. It's not so much your quiet time, your time with the Lord, though it begins there, but it's the time, the time in the Word is the time to glean information that you can then think about and mull over all day long. In the book of Joshua, Joshua was uh, fearful of his responsibilities. I mean, imagine trying to take over from Moses. And the Lord tells him, of course, you know, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. But then he makes that wonderful statement. He says, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. The goal of meditation is doing. The goal of scripture reading and thinking through it is application, which is what, here in Psalm 1, we're told is what makes this blessed man blessed. Look at verse 3. The results are, says, he will be like a tree, firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. So here we have some really good uh, evidences or illustrations, metaphors, or what is this, a simile, because it's like, 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 uh, of what the blessing is of meditating on Scripture. And we also get a wonderful perspective here that a tree by water, think about that, a tree by water, a tree doesn't receive uh, water from a stream and then bear fruit the same day. The water is absorbed 
into the roots, and then eventually it bears fruit in season. We lived uh, about 25 years ago in a different house, and we planted an oak tree in our front yard. And it was, you know, when you buy an oak tree, you spend like, you know, $200 and you get something that's six feet tall and, and is about as big around as your wrist. The little bitty trees, and you just think, you know, I hope I still live in this house when it's big enough to enjoy. And, uh, and, and we didn't, but uh, whoever's there now gets to really enjoy this tree. But we planted this oak tree, and when we put it in there, the, it was a really windy day. And I noticed that it kept leaning over, and the, the bulb kept trying to come up. So I staked it down, and a couple of years later, took the stakes away, and I moved it. And it, it hadn't, it, uh, it, it, the roots had taken, taken root, but the tree hadn't grown any taller. And I just thought, you know, what an interesting uh, what an interesting process that this tree, for the first two years of its life, at least in our yard, um, focused on its roots, not on its leaves and limbs, but focused on its roots. It grew where it mattered so that when it was time to grow big, it could support it. I think a lot of us feel that tension of um, giving priority where it belongs. And I'll tell you, you know it as well as I do. This world, it's not easy to do it, not even in our Christian world. COVID has given us really no excuse in a sense that we're sort of stuck at home and, and uh, we've got nothing but time to order, in order to devote ourselves to the Word of God. But typically, in the world that we live in, it's all about the leaves, isn't it? It's all about the limbs. It's all about having a bark that looks good. Uh, it's all about the externals. The roots are assumed. They're underground. Nobody sees them. We just assume that they're there. And in our Christian circles, it's the same way. You know, we sort of walk around and we look at different faces or even here on the Zoom class, you look at the different squares there and we just sort of assume, yeah, I know Dennis is reading the Bible. I know that Lindsay's reading her Bible. Of course she is. Of course they are. Well, how do you know I'm reading my Bible? How do you know I'm watering my roots? We assume that, don't we? But the truth is, we don't know it. Only we know whether it's true in our lives or, or not. I can see your leaves and limbs, but I can't see your roots. You know, our spiritual lives never just take care of themselves. Nobody ever accidentally grows up and becomes spiritual. As we grow older, it doesn't happen by accident. In fact, if we could use the tree again as an illustration, we would realize that um, if we don't pull the weeds. Weeds take over our trees. Weeds grow on their own. Trees don't grow on their own. We got to water the trees. We got to pull the weeds. It's the same in our spiritual life. Left to ourselves, our spiritual lives grow weeds, and we got to water those roots. Of course, the challenge often in watering a tree is, uh, especially the first couple years, you just feel like you're watering dirt. You don't see anything happening. Spiritual life is the same way on a daily basis. Sometimes we'll uh, sit down with our cup of coffee or our cup of tea or whatever it is that we uh, uh, use as we open the Word, and we just sort of sit there and think, you know, Lord, I feel like I'm watering dirt. <laughs> uh, I'm reading the Word, and it's just not connecting with me. But, you know, Jesus spoke uh, one time of a parable and he, you don't need to turn there, but just listen to this parable from Matthew 13. 
He said, The one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word, and he immediately receives it with joy, yet has no firm root in himself, but it's only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. Matthew thirteen twenty and 21. I like that uh, metaphor Jesus gives because it fits right in here with Psalm 1. And the idea is that we, we need to water those roots. We need to take care of what's under the ground and not be so concerned about what everybody sees, or at least not just be concerned about what everybody sees. We need to also be concerned about what's under the ground. And uh, we've got our limbs and our leaves in place, but let's also make sure that our roots are getting watered, even when it feels like you're just watering dirt and that it's not uh, making much progress. How do we know if the roots are getting watered, if the roots are actually growing, if, if the spiritual life is taking root in our lives? Well, what's the fruit? What's the fruit? Because it's going to bear fruit in its season. You know, in Galatians 5, the Apostle Paul said that the evidence of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives is pretty easy to see. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Are these things visible in your life and my life? Well, then we know that the root is working. Because these things don't just show up if the root's not working. If the roots are working, then these fruits will, will happen in season. But notice again here back in Psalm 1, verse 3, the natural result of this continual nourishment, the tree is by the streams of water, the natural result of this continual nourishment is fruit produced in season. And that's important to note because, because we typically want to water the tree and then eat the apple within the hour. And the reality is that apple doesn't come until season time. And so often it's important for us to commit, uh, remain committed to our time in the Word and meditating on the truth so that when the season comes, when it's time, we bear fruit in the way that God wants us to bear fruit. So, let's talk about principles uh, for application, or at least the first one. And it's a really pretty simple. Um, here it is. Meditating on God's Word begins the life change that we want. Meditating on God's Word begins the life change that we want. We all want the, uh, the microwave Christianity, the, the instant mashed potatoes of Christianity. But the reality is it doesn't work like that. If you want mashed potatoes, first you've got to plant potatoes. You've got to water them. Then you've got to pull them. Then you've got to peel them. Then you've got to cut them. Then you've got to crush them. Then you've got to cook them. And then make sure you put lots of butter in it. If you want to eat mashed potatoes the way that God wants, uh, the way that mashed potatoes are really good, uh, instant, mm, you get what you get. But if you want great mashed potatoes, it's a process of work. Same is true of our lives. Uh, the life change that we want is meditating on God's Word. That's where it begins. 
that's where it begins. So we can't expect uh, life change without a true meditation on the Word of God. It has to happen there. This is the road less traveled, in the sense. It's the road that a lot of people never uh, commit to doing on a long-term basis because, frankly, it's tough work. It's tough sledding. I remember uh, a phrase that Oliver Cromwell once told the English Parliament. It's a very simple truth. He said, the mind is the man. The Bible said it in a different way, but it's a similar idea, that as a man thinks within himself, so he is. Whatever shapes a person's thinking is going to shape their doing. If you want to shape your doing, you got to shape your thinking. You can't think error and live truth. It doesn't work like that. Now, keep your finger there in Psalm 1 and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Typically, when we think of Romans 8, we think of verse 28, but there actually are some other verses in that chapter, and it's really uh, got some good, thoughtful verses toward the beginning. Romans chapter 8. Uh, I love the phrase, and I don't know who first said it, but it's so true, that the quality of your spiritual life is the quality of your life. And the key to the spiritual life is your thinking. And the key to your thinking is meditation on truth. It's what the, the book of Romans, a little bit later, calls the renewal of the mind. And, it, and it's just like it was for Eve in the garden. If Satan can get us away from the truth and the influence of the Word of God, if he can muddy the Word of God like our culture is doing its best to do in our minds, if he can get the Word of God out of the picture, then we have nothing left by which to make a, a decision than common sense, than just the externals. And we're going to make the choice that Eve made every single time. We're going to do what seems best for us. We're going to look at it and say, that looks good for food, good for knowledge, good for life. And we're going to take that bite that ends up being the thing that is a poor decision for us as well as for generations to come. We all want life change, but our problem is we think we know how that life change ought to, ought to take place. My life would be better if... I had more money. My life would be better if my spouse would change, if my boss would change. You fill in the blank. We've all got them. But the Bible gives no such affirmation. The Bible says that we meditate on God's Word, and uh, then we put into practice what we're meditating on. Romans chapter 8, look at verse 6, as Paul talks about our mind and our thinking. Romans 8, 6, he says, For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, it's not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Basically, Paul is saying that this way of life, this habitual way of living is how we think. And when we have a mindset that is on the things of the flesh, or you might have a translation that says the sinful nature, it's the same idea. If we have a mind that is set on the things of the sinful nature, then notice its result, ultimately, 
It's things that lead to death. And it is hostile toward God. And it's impossible, Paul says, to be obedient. In short, if we're programming our mind to fail, we're programming our mind to fail when we dwell on anything but the Word of God. If we can learn how to think, we will learn how to respond rather than react in any given situation. Now, leave Romans and turn to the right to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. I had a friend uh, years ago who was asked uh, by another guy if uh, my friend could suggest some verses that would help this other guy on temptation. And my friend said, yeah, what about 1 Corinthians 10.13? And the other guy said, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that one. I'm looking for some other verses. And my friend said, what, does the verse not work anymore? And it was a great insight. The verse works if we will do what it says. It's not a matter of knowing. It's a matter of doing. Another friend of mine had a daughter who had recently died And he said, Wayne, I learned something. Uh, He said, I learned the truth of Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. And he says this, this is what I learned. The verse works. And this is from a guy who lost his daughter. He said, Philippians 4, 6 and 7 works. Well, you're in Philippians 4. Let's read these verses that work. Paul writes, be anxious for nothing, verse 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Notice it will guard your mind in Christ Jesus. In those verses, Paul tells us what to pray. And then notice, in the very next verse, he tells us what to think. He says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Why does Paul tell us this? Three simple verses. He tells us this because we default to growing weeds. We default to do just the opposite. We're not anxious for nothing. We're anxious for everything, aren't we? We don't have the peace of God in our natural state. Um, We don't think about what is true and honorable or right. We think about everything that isn't. In our natural state. And again, if you think back to the, what we read in Romans 8, the mind set on the flesh is hostile to the things of God. If Paul tells us here in Philippians, here's how to set your mind on the things of the Holy Spirit. Choose, determine, make a willing choice. This is what I'm going to think about. And if anything enters your mind that isn't this, crowd it out with the things that, that it should be. Because the way we think is the way we will live. Meditating on God's Word begins the life change we want. That was our first principle. Meditating on God's Word begins the life change we want. And it begins by transforming our minds. So let me ask you just 
real practical. What are you struggling with right now? What specific truths from God's Word address that struggle? Because those are the things that you should be thinking about and the things I should be thinking about in my life as well. What specific truths from God's Word address that issue and we meditate on those things? And we, um, and we allow it to renew our minds to truth. Like when Jesus was tempted by Satan, remember what Jesus did every time he quoted Scripture. And it was a Scripture that related to that particular temptation. And even when Satan caught, uh, caught Jesus' method, he says, oh, you want to quote Scripture? Satan goes, I can quote Scripture, and he twists something out of context. And then Jesus comes back with a, a Scripture that says, nope, you're taking that out of context. Here's the truth. Jesus filtered the temptation that he was dealing with through the Word of God. Marvelous model for us. Well, turn back now to Psalm 1, and let's look down the other road. We've looked down the road of the person who's blessed. Now, in contrast to the person who is blessed, who meditates on the Word of God, look at verse 4. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. I want to show you a picture here. This is a, a, a custom. I think we've heard about it probably from a lot of pulpits, but we don't often get to see the process here. But you can see the process of chaff in the wind. This, this old guy here has got a stack of wheat, and when you would thresh the wheat, you can see these animals are, are walking and crushing and when they crush, there's this uh, chaff that's also with it, with the wheat. And so what this guy does is he takes this little pitchfork here, and he throws, he throws everything up in the air, and the wind blows the lighter chaff away, and the good stuff that you want is what falls down. Um, the psalmist is using this to describe the, the wicked. They are light they are easily blown away. They are uh, not what you want. They are just taken away in the moment of testing and in the moment of temptation. This is what the psalmist is telling us, is giving us this sort of a, a picture. The wicked are like chaff which the wind drives away. And notice here that the opposite of the man who meditates on God's word is not called one who doesn't meditate on God's Word, but this person is called the wicked. In other words, it's assumed that as a believer, you and I, as believers, we will be meditating on the Word of God. So contrast those two, these two images here. You've got a tree that's planted by streams of water that bears fruit, or you've got chaff that blows away in the wind. Talk about two totally opposite metaphors for a simple decision of being in the Word, meditating in the Word, applying the Word, or not. And I love that the, the person who's in the Word gets three verses. The wicked person just gets this short little verse four. And you've got two verses here at the end of the psalm that make contrasts for these two decisions. Look at the simple conclusion of these two different roads here in verse five. 
We read, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. We've got two results from two different decisions, both the judgment which the wicked receives and God's blessing of the way of righteousness, the direct results of roads that these individuals have chosen to walk. You know, the private time that we have with the Lord uh, on a regular basis, on a daily basis, reminds us that we're going to stand before God one day by ourselves. And I guess what I mean is private time with God, one-on-one time with God, is a nice reminder that one day we're going to stand one-on-one, one-on-one with that same Lord, the exact same Lord. It allows us to, you might just think of rebooting your heart. You know, when something's not right with your computer, the first thing you should just do is just restart the thing. It might just be a simple fix. It'll take care of itself. And it's that way often with our spiritual lives. We need a reboot. And it's so wonderful to just have uh, uh, sleep, just the, the restoration of just sleep and waking up to a brand new day. There's just something about a new day. His mercies indeed are new every morning. And there's just this privilege of being able to uh, start a new day, open the Word, and allow God's truth to begin the day with uh, with truth before the the rush of emotions and the influence of the world muddy up the waters of our brains. Well, here's the second principle. The first one was meditating on God's word begins the life change we want. Now, looking at the wicked person, here's the other principle. Ignoring God's word is rejecting the life change we want. Um, I'm trying to think This just sort of popped in my head, but I think Paul writes to Timothy, and he tells him to uh, flee youthful lusts and pursue righteousness with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. I like that because it talks about uh, fleeing one thing and pursuing another thing. And even though those are two different verbs, it's the same action. Think about that. To flee from one thing, to flee from unrighteousness, and to pursue righteousness is the same action. So, when we are choosing to uh, follow God and follow God's Word, we are rejecting wickedness. When we refuse to follow God's Word, uh, we, are, we are pursuing wickedness. Kathy and I have a friend who lives in Florida. He's a retired surgeon, great guy. He writes postcards as a hobby. And so about every you know couple of weeks, he'll, I'll get a postcard in the mail, and he'll tell me the weather in Florida and just all this, all this different details. But one time he told me, and I'll never forget his words, he looked me right in the face and he said, Wayne, I have to be in God's Word every day, every single day. And he was so Severe, almost, when he told me that. And I thought, wow, here's a, here's a retired gentleman who even at his age is saying, I can't, I can't go a day without, uh, without God. I can't go a day without God's Word. I need God's Word in my life. 
You know, I feel like sometimes we've said this so much here in class, and we hear it so much in our circles that we feel like we're beating a dead horse. Uh, Spend time in the Word. Spend time in the Bible. But you know, if we're beating a dead horse, then maybe we need to beat a dead horse to get that thing to get up, to let it resurrect, because um, if the horse is dead, (laughs) I know it's probably not what the metaphor means, but uh, we we need to... To give new life, in some sense, to to our spiritual lives uh, every day, we can't we can't coast. If you try to coast on a bicycle, eventually you're going to fall over. You got to pedal, and it's the same way in the spiritual life. So, practical uh, time in the Word. Uh, do you spend time in the Word on a regular basis, even a daily basis? It's not a legalistic box to check any more than you eating a meal is legalistic. You eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you're not doing that because, you know, you're checking a box and you get to go to your accountability group or your friends or whatever and say, you know what, I ate three meals every day this week. That's not why we eat. We eat because it is essential to our physical lives. We spend time in the Word of God because it is essential to our spiritual life. And the quality of our spiritual life is the quality of our entire life. You can have circumstances that are, that are challenging, but if you are a spiritual individual walking with God, you can persevere through those things. So, and even if you've got to go through the motions, go through the motions. I think about this sometimes when I'm running. I try to run about three miles three times a week. And sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less. But it usually takes me about two miles just before I feel like, okay, you know, this, this may work. And the third mile is pleasurable. Uh, I enjoy the third mile. The first two miles, I hate them. I, I'm, the first two miles, I'm basically convincing my body, yes, we really are going to do this. Quit trying to tell me to stop. Uh, I'm going through the motions on the first two miles. It's not till the third mile that joy kicks in or or a, a feeling of pleasure. You finally get in the groove and you can just run without having to push yourself so hard. Time in the Word is the same. I find that if I just force myself to show up, to open my Bible, and for the first two miles just go through the motions, God shows up on that third mile many times. So if you struggle feeling like, you know what, I'm just not getting that much out of it, go through the motions and ask the Lord, Lord, give me one insight that I can apply today, one truth that I can meditate on throughout the day, and uh, see if that doesn't begin to give you encouragement. And as this wonderful text tells us, to allow you to be planted like a tree by streams of water and to enjoy the blessing Um, of delighting in the Lord and meditating on His Word. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we look at this uh, wonderful psalm together today, this familiar territory, we notice there's no third option. There's, There's one road, and then there's a second road, and that's it. We either spend time with, with you and spend time in the Word, allowing your Word to shape our minds, or we don't, and by default, we're allowing the world to do it. 
Father, give us the strength to at least begin by going through the motions. And then as we're there by a matter of discipline and commitment, would you show up on that third mile? Would you encourage uh, encourage us through the Word, through the Spirit that gives us insight and encouragement to renew our minds, to give us right thinking, to enable us to filter our emotions and thoughts and the lies of the world through the truth of your Word and let the results of our lives bear fruit for your glory and for our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.